Uh, let's ask God to help us understand and believe his word. Let's pray. Our true and living God, we thank you that you have brought us here uh, to hear again uh, the witness of Jesus' apostles to his resurrection. We pray in your mercy that we would hear and understand their testimony and that we would believe it, that we would know for ourselves that your son Jesus has risen and know what it means. Help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand it and receive it with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, you've probably noticed if you've been around Christians and churches for a while that we tend to make a lot of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, but to be honest, for the people of Jesus' day, the crucifixion of Jesus wasn't something exceptional or unusual. Crucifixions had happened in their hundreds in the preceding decades and almost run-of-the-mill occurrences. It was just the Roman way of doing business, as it were, the way Romans quashed dissent and maintained control. Crucifixion was just part of the way the world worked. And as I'm getting older, I might be getting a bit jaded, but as far as I can see, the circumstances of Jesus' crucifixion is also really still just the way the world works, all pretty ordinary. The good being sacrificed for power, truth being secondary to pragmatic concerns and utilitarian judgments, what seems best for all. Affairs of cities and states being guided by the sentiment of the mob, manipulated by the influences for their own self-interest. None of that's unusual. On one level, the story of Jesus' end has really just been a sadly familiar story. And the grief of Mary at the tomb, when she cannot find the body of Jesus, well, that is sadly familiar as well. Hers has been a sudden loss of one who was loved and respected so dear to her that she had anointed his feet with expensive ointment and wiped them with her hair. Hers has been a violent loss as she witnessed Jesus' cruel death and like all death, it's an irreversible loss. But it's not a unique loss. Many have lost those they love suddenly, violently, and all have lost those they love in death irreversibly. And now, when she's looking to express her devotion one last time, we see it's a loss compounded by not knowing. Verse 13, the angels say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she says, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now that compounding of loss, the distressing absence of the body, is also something we're familiar with. I don't know if you realise it, but several states have passed over the last year no body, no parole laws in recognition of the extra burden placed on grieving families by the absence of the body of their loved one, by not having a grave at which to mourn. Uh, when the Queensland law was passed in 2017, the parents of a murdered young man whose body had not been found and who had campaigned for this change said the law would stop people having to suffer the way all our families have had to suffer, not knowing 
because it's the wondering. In her grief, Mary is now confronted either by a further unkindness or a thoughtless indifference, left without a focus for her grief, not knowing, wondering. Now we know this world Mary lives in, don't we? A world where you can experience injustice, know the unfairness of it all, of the time and chance that takes from you those you love. And yet you're powerless to change things, to even ensure a proper mourning, burdened by grief. And yet living in a world that will not pause for grief. You can be sure that outside that garden, Jerusalem, the world was getting ready for another day, another day of buying and selling of plans and journeys. So this is a world where we can be so alone with our tears, have hearts like Mary's, heavy with loss while the spring sun shines. And then Jesus says, Mary. Mary hears Jesus call her name. Mary hadn't recognised him before, had not given this figure in the garden her full attention. Her mind was full of her loss and her need to find the body. Sir, she'd said, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She was not expecting to see Jesus, not expecting him to be alive. Be alive. She was searching for a corpse, not a living voice. But then the good shepherd calls her by name and she knows his voice. She didn't find the body, but the living Jesus has found her. Oh yes, verse 17, the reunion is not a permanent. Uh, Jesus has yet to ascend to the Father. She cannot cling to him. But Mary knows that he lives and the promises he has made her are true and there is no more need for tears. And even the most jaded of us, those most wearied and aware of the grief and folly and the cruelty of the world, can feel the goodness of this moment to have that loved one with you again, whether it's that son or daughter or brother or sister lost prematurely, the parent who loved you, that friend whose absence leaves you aching. To have them alive, talking with you again, to hear in their voice their love for you. Risen from the dead, we think, oh, that it were so. Oh, that it were so for Mary. Oh, that it were so for us. We feel the goodness, sense the beauty of the garden at that moment when Mary's weeping ceases. We feel the goodness, sense the longing of our own hearts that death would not be the end for those we love. But we know that this story isn't really good unless it's true. Unless Jesus, alive from the dead, is really there, this is just an empty story, at best expressing an aspiration, at worst mocking our real losses. You see, in our world, we know all about fine words, words we want to believe that are empty. Stories just told to manipulate our feelings and empty our wallets. Words that hold out hope but leave you uncertain and wondering. Some of us have actually been wounded 
by fine but empty words. You know those words, I love you. I'll never do it again. Words which may have been wishes, but we have been painfully forced to see had no reality. You even hear those fine kind of words, words we want to believe in relation to death. You might have heard them at a funeral. Things like, your loved one is a star in the sky looking down on you. Oh, she'll live forever and her presence will be with us all our lives. Or, and I found these in guides to celebrants for funerals. When you live in the hearts of those you love, remember then you never die, which of course is a strange thing to say at a funeral. Fine words, but empty. Band-aids for broken hearts that need more. And despite what sometimes is claimed, the way we feel about things doesn't make reality. Our feelings keep none of those we love our lo love alive. Our longing never brings them back. Death is an absolute which does not flatter our sense of importance, our claims to be able to create reality. For this story to be good, it's not enough to feel its goodness. It must be true. God knows that and gives proof of Jesus' resurrection, provides evidence to the senses of the reality of the risen Jesus, first to the apostles and then to us by their testimony, their witness. But one of those apostles, Thomas, who you heard of in the reading, who we'll meet in verse 24, also knew that for the resurrection of Jesus to be good news, it must be true. Oh, I suspect he knew as well that the more we long for something to be true, the more likely we are to be deceived. And Thomas is determined not to be deceived, not to be hurt by the disappointment, to not open even a crack to the hope that his beloved master lived. Thomas had heard the reports of his friends, people with whom he had lived and travelled for three years. They had told him clearly that the Jesus who had been crucified, who had been buried, was alive, that he had shown them his hands inside, the identifying marks of the wounds still there, that this was Jesus they had met, no mistake. In Luke, it tells us that on that first Sunday night, Jesus had even shared broiled fish with them to assure them he was no ghost, no disembodied spirit, verse 39. See my hands and my feet, he said, that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marvelling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Thomas had heard their report heard of how Jesus had demonstrated to them that he was alive, but he could not bring himself to believe. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my, hands into his, my hand into his side, I will never believe. Did you hear that? Even the evidence of his own eyes would not be enough. He would have to touch those wounds. And then, eight days later, Thomas is convinced 
of Jesus' resurrection, convinced by Jesus himself. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas is convinced by the appearing of Jesus. And actually what is true of Thomas is true of all the apostles. All those mentioned by the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, there he speaks of witnesses to the resurrection. He said, after speaking of Peter and the twelve, he says, then he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Did you hear that word repeated? He appeared. It is the appearance of Jesus himself that convinced those first witnesses that Jesus was alive in the body in which he had died. It was being able to speak with him, walk with him, eat with him, be instructed by him that convinced them. There was no mass hallucination, no confusion about whether Jesus had really died, about whether those Roman executioners had really done their job. There was no error about where the body had been placed, no conspiracy to project onto the pages of history their convictions about Jesus. Those first witnesses, the apostles and others, were not convinced of the resurrection by an empty tomb and an absent body. They were convinced by an empty tomb and a present embodied Jesus appearing to them. The goodness of Jesus' resurrection we sense in his tear-ending calling of Mary is real. It is good because the resurrection is true. And it's good not just for Jesus and his first followers, those who knew him personally while he was on earth. Sometimes that's what we seem to think, as if the story ends with the fact of the resurrection and a happy reunion with his followers, that the significance of Jesus' resurrection is exhausted when we have asserted that it has happened. But Jesus' resurrection is good for us all because it is part of a bigger story, not an isolated event. That bigger story is presented to us in Thomas's confession on being addressed by the risen Jesus. Do you remember his words? Because they are memorable. He sees Jesus and he says, My Lord and my God. See, the gospel is not the story of a private individual. It's not even the story of an heroic and righteous man. It is the story of the true and good God come to save. We've been told that throughout the beginning, throughout the gospel. We've seen it at the beginning of the gospel. Jesus, we're told, is the eternal word who is God and with God become flesh to bring us grace and truth. It's the repeated claim of Jesus in the gospel that he is one sent from the Father to do his will and speak his words. The good God's saving is what is happening in the crucifixion of Jesus as the King of the Jews. And now this is recognised in that room by Thomas as he sees the wounds in the risen Jesus' hands and side. Thomas 
having seen all that Jesus did. Thomas, having heard all that Jesus taught, that he comes from above, that he does what he sees the Father doing, that before Abraham was, he is. Oh, Thomas, having heard Jesus speak repeatedly of his relationship with the Father, having been, for example, in the upper room when Jesus answers Philip's question, Lord, show us the Father. And then heard Jesus say, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Thomas, who has seen all that Jesus did, who has heard Jesus speak of himself and his relationship with the Father, knows that Jesus' resurrection is now the demonstration of the truth of all that Jesus has said and done, the demonstration of the truth of his relationship with the Father. Because resurrection is a demonstration only God can give. That's right, isn't it? Only God can give life. Only God can raise the dead. It is not within the power of humans to do so. That is self-evident, isn't it? That's why no one else has risen over the centuries. More. Thomas knows that the resurrection is the demonstration that Jesus is God. Well, not all the God there is, but the Son of God, who had received from the Father the power to lay down his life and the power to take it up again, as he said, and that Jesus, like the Father, has life in himself. And Thomas's confession of Jesus as God, his locating the resurrection in the story of the good God come to save, tells us also that the resurrection is the sign and the guarantee of that purpose to save. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can give the life of the age to come, the eternal life that Jesus promises. Now we know the risen Jesus can be trusted to do all that he has promised to forgive and give life. And we know that the life he promises is life like his. Life, death no longer has any hold over the eternal life of the age to come that starts now. This is the life Jesus gives to all who believe his word who will share Thomas's confession, who will come to believe through hearing the witness of the apostles that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the promise. As John says at the end of the book, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is, that he is Lord and God and that by believing you may have life in his name. By appointing the apostles his messengers, sending them out as the Father had sent him, as we heard in verse 21, and equipping them with his spirit, Jesus has made provision for all to hear. He said to them, As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And just of the purpose of Jesus' coming was to save, not to condemn the world. So that is the purpose 
of the coming and the preaching of the apostles to bring forgiveness of sins, freedom from judgment, life. Jesus said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. The apostles' gospel declares forgiveness to all who believe, who will confess Jesus as Lord and God. The purpose of the gospel is to save. But just as to ignore Jesus' word was to stay in death and condemnation, so Jesus also warns that to ignore the apostles' gospel is to still be in your sin, to be without forgiveness. He said to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, brothers and sisters, it is not an accident that we are hearing of Jesus' resurrection today, hearing the witness of those who saw the risen Jesus. This is the provision of Jesus for us, his provision to give us that life for Jesus has sent his word out into the world, sent his world out to save, to save you and I if we believe. Here in the risen Jesus, the Son of God calling to us in his gospel is comfort not only for Mary, but for all who weep. It is not too good to be true, but good because it is true. And so this evening I say, do you know the truth of the resurrection by receiving the witness of the apostles? They weren't deceived and they weren't trying to deceive. They were telling the truth. Receive the witness of the apostles and so come to know the living Jesus who is truth himself, to know him by believing the word he commissioned them to preach, the word he gave them. Know the truth of the resurrection for yourself. And if you're sitting here and saying, yes, I believe the resurrection, well, give yourself time and space to feel the goodness of his resurrection. By feeling the goodness of his gift of life, his resurrection guarantees. So feel the goodness of his forgiveness that he gives to all who believe the gospel. That forgiveness is now established as certain for all who believe the witness of the apostles because the resurrection tells us he is Lord and God or judgment is his. So forgiven by Jesus, you are forgiven forever and for all. And as you sit here tonight, believer, do you feel that in your heart? That what you're ashamed of, what perhaps you still hold against yourself, what you acknowledge rightfully deserves the anger of a holy God, is actually forgiven by the Son of God as you trust him. Do you feel the goodness of his forgiveness? And believer, do you feel the goodness of the hope he gives where death is not the end, a certain hope, it's now the risen Jesus who has shown that he has life in himself, shown death is no barrier to his keeping his word, who says to you in his gospel, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Verse 
Jesus is risen from the dead. Why would you doubt him? Do you feel the goodness of the hope he brings? And do you feel the goodness of relationship with the almighty God as your father, which is the life Jesus, the son of God, brings and gives to all who trust him? This is eternal life, he said, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The life Jesus brings is not an abstract thing, something that's just an idea or something that only starts after you die. It is relationship now with a living God whom you can know in knowing his Son. It's a relationship in the Son where just as the Son can call God Father, you can call God Father and where you can trust him and his good purpose for you, where you can call on him, come to him for grace and help, know yourself even as you go through this life as his adopted child assured of his love. Do you feel the goodness of that relationship? Know the truth of the resurrection, feel its goodness. And if you're a believer... Don't be abashed, ashamed to share its beauty. You know, sometimes Christians are are made to feel that our faith is ugly and life-restricting, that to come to believe in Jesus means somehow becoming inauthentic and that to ask people to turn to Jesus is somehow to injure them. Don't be conned. Don't be conned by those who want to pretend that the prison of their own thought, feelings and desires is the whole world, who don't want to face truth outside themselves. The news of the resurrection and the bigger story of which it is a part, the story of the good, saving God, being true and good is also beautiful. In a world where we mark, and are marred by selfishness, the resurrection is the triumph and vindication of love, of a love that pours itself out for others, a love that brings life. And isn't love, true love, real love, beautiful? I mean, we recognise that. We recognise the beauty of a mother's love for her child, sacrificing for the child. We recognise the beauty of the love of bride and groom. But this love, is love for the undeserving, for a rebellious world. This is love which gives all that lays down its life. It is beautiful. And in a world where so much is confused and obscured, the resurrection is the clarity and light of truth. And isn't light beautiful in itself? And doesn't it bring out the beauty of all the good it shines upon? right, light is beautiful, we feel that. Beautiful even if it exposes our own darkness. And where so often injustice gets ignored, the resurrection tells us that God establishes justice for the innocent son is vindicated. And it reveals his determination to re-establish justice in his universe. And isn't justice that brings and sustains order at the heart of all beauty, the possibility of beauty, of distinguishing beauty from ugliness, justice is beautiful. 
even if it condemns our own injustice. Oh, and more, the resurrection of Jesus is the exaltation of the humble, the reward of the meek, the fulfilment of faithfulness, the resurrection. And the story of which it is part is beautiful, even if it exposes our unselfish pride, our self-centred impatience, or our self-deceiving failures. And so this evening, if in your heart there is a longing for what is true, what is good and what is beautiful, a longing to leave the lie behind the lies and evil and the ugliness of sin, of your own sin. Or come and believe the gospel of the risen Jesus. These things are written, said Jesus. He has brought this gospel to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life, that good life, in his name. That is the promise of the living God, the God who is always near to those who call on him, to you. If you want to do that, if you want truth, goodness, beauty, the truth, goodness, beauty that the risen Jesus brings, come to him. And if you're unsure of what to do or want to know more, come and talk. We would be so happy to go through a gospel, the witness of the apostles to Jesus with you. And if you are sitting here tonight a believer in the gospel of the risen Jesus, well, be determined to hold fast to its truth. There's nothing else and nothing better, and it is true. Jesus lives, risen in the body in which he suffered for our sins on the cross, risen never to die again. Hold fast to its truth and live thankful for its goodness, the goodness that as a believer you experience each day, the good gifts of forgiveness, of hope, of relationship with the Almighty God as your Father, where you're assured of his love, a love from which not even death will separate you. Live thankful for its goodness and share the beauty of the resurrection and of the good and saving God. For it is the beauty of the risen Christ, full of grace and truth, the grace and truth we need and long for. Rejoice, the Lord is risen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it is extraordinary that we can sit here and hear the witness of those whom Jesus called to his resurrection, to hear that they weren't deceived, were determined not to be deceived, and yet still came to confess Jesus is risen, Lord and God, confess because the living Lord Jesus had convinced them. We pray that through your spirit we would know for ourselves in our hearts that their witness is true. And we pray knowing that Jesus has risen. We would know the delight and joy 
of knowing that every word he spoke is true. Every promise he made is faithful and sure. Fill us, we pray, with thankfulness for the goodness of his resurrection, for knowing that our Lord and God can forgive us and that his forgiveness is sure and certain and enduring, for knowing that he, our risen Jesus, can raise us to life. Oh yes, and fill us with thankfulness for the goodness of knowing that we can turn to you as our Father and know that you hear us and you love us and you will keep us for Jesus' sake. And gracious God, knowing the goodness of the resurrection for ourselves, make us bold, unashamed to share it, to share its beauty in a world which is full of darkness and lies, so that others will come to know its truth, its goodness, and to delight in the vindication of light and love that you have given us in raising your Son. Uh, we ask this in his name. Amen.